Welcome to Careers Unwrapped, where we delve into real-life career stories from successful people who've been through it all, the ups and the downs. We'll get their raw, honest, actionable advice and be the careers talk they wish they'd had when they started out. As someone who has had a varied career, from soldier to salesman, expedition leader to entrepreneur, he knows firsthand that your career doesn't always lead you where you expect it to. Here's your host, Mark Fawcett. Hello and welcome to Careers Unwrapped. I'm your host, Mark Fawcett, and with me today is Anna Anderson. Now, Anna is a social entrepreneur. She's a CEO and a co-founder of Kindred, which is an open house in Hammersmith in London. It's aimed at many things, tackling loneliness, building community. It's a social working space by day. It's an entertainment venue by night. And Anna's hopefully going to be talking honestly about her own career highs and lows, her work from social worker through to business leader, as well as offering perhaps some thoughts, even some inspiration for those of you who are figuring out your own career pathways. So Anna, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Anna, why don't we start? Tell us a bit more about Kindred. Yeah, so Kindred is a lot of things. We call ourselves an open house because we want to be this like physical space in the community that people can just come and spend time in, bring themselves and use it however they want to use it. And what that means, practically speaking, is that we're a big, beautiful, grade two listed building, three floors, and we offer four different things. So we have our food and drink offering, which we have a restaurant and bar that's opens all day for people. We have our events offering. So we have a calendar of events ranging from live music, spoken word, talks and panels and discussions. And then we have our private events offering. So people can book the space for their own events. And last but definitely not least, we have our co-working offering that's sort of aimed at independent freelancers, people who typically work on their own. They come on a day pass and they just come and use a space when it's available, which is great. The ethos behind Kindred is very much about building community. And I know that community is sort of like buzzword and everyone's a bit tired of hearing it. I think that London is cited as one of the loneliest places to live for all the different reasons. I think if you move to London for work, you're kind of expecting to be like wrapped up in this amazing, busy city with all these people. But actually, sometimes I think the reality sort of dawns on you that making friends is hard as an adult. And where do you go to meet people? If you don't like your colleagues, the culture there isn't great. How do you do that? Where do you go? So we're really interested in this concept of being this third space or being this other space that isn't home, isn't work, but is somewhere in between where people can just come, spend their time, meet new people. And yeah, I feel like they're part of something that's bigger than their normal life. So that's what we do. So Anna, that's a really good summary of what Kindred is. But what sort of people are actually coming there each day? Who's making best use of it? Yeah, interesting. I mean, Kindred appeals to different groups of people for different reasons. So we have the people that love to come to the events, and they'll often come from further afield. But the people, the space during the daytime for the co-working, typically very local, usually people that work solo or are entrepreneurs building a business in the startup phase and just need somewhere inspiring, but not too noisy, not too busy. But also we're finding people that are coming to us because they are resonate. The message of building community, making connection and tackling loneliness really resonates with them because that's been their experience of London. And these are not like outcasts, like weird people. These are like who just moved to London for work or, or they've lived here for a very long time and they just haven't quite got that sort of network 
that group of friends that seems to be everyone sort of thinks everyone has. But actually, in reality, it's quite hard to do that. So we have found that people have come to us and they come and co-work every day and they just pay for their day pass. But we also host this like coffee morning thing where everyone kind of meets each other and has coffee just for like half an hour in the, in the morning. And it's genuinely been one of the most magical things about Kindred because people actually meet each other and actually friendships are formed. Sometimes romantic relationships are formed, business partnerships are formed from that really simple act of just putting on a coffee morning. So yes, it attracts all sorts of different types of people, just super broad. We're for the 20 somethings and the 70 somethings and everyone in between. And yeah, it's a really fun community to be a part of. So your role there, you're described as both CEO and a founder. They seem quite different things. So what have you found the differences now between being a startup and actually now having to run an organization, a business with customers, clients, with staff? It's a really interesting question. And no one's asked me that before. And I think it's sort of highlighting a thing in me that I'm, I'm anxious about. And I'm really bad with job titles. So ask my team, they get driven crazy. They're like, Anna, what is my actual job title? And I think that's sort of the startup mentality of like, let's just all muck in and just like crack on. And so the CEO title kind of makes me cringe a little bit because I do feel like we are this team that we, we make collective decisions often and it's very democratic and there is a structure there, but it's been hard won over the years. So I think in terms of how to balance the startup sort of culture and sort of a more professional, well-structured organization, we're still figuring that out, like honestly. And in my mind, we're still a startup because we started, we opened a year before COVID like, hit us. And then the two years were sort of, well, we were closed for the majority of it, or we were open, but like with restrictions, we reinvented ourselves a few times. So I still feel very much in startup phase. But I think in terms of, you know, there are some really great things about being a startup is you've got that energy, you've got that sort of verb, like everyone's in, everyone's mucking in and it's really fun and everyone can kind of be creative and throw ideas around. That's fantastic. I think what I've learned is that sometimes to get the best out of people, you do need to build that structure. And I am, that it goes against my natural instinct. So I think planting the CEO title on myself was like, come on, Anna, like enough sort of madness. Let's actually like build something that has longevity and can survive beyond you. Um, something you can hand over to someone else. I'm still learning what that means and we're still sort of building it out, but we're getting there. I think that resonates so strongly with me. I try to sort of keep a startup mentality in my own mind, even though the business I run now has been going for 20 years and the CEO title forces you to grow up in a business context and job titles do matter, but they can also be constraining. And what I do love is that at the beginning, I was better than most people at what we did. And now there's very few things that I'm better at than all the people who I work with. So the need professionalize balance with the need to want to keep feeling like you're starting up and reinvigorating, I think is always a challenging one. And in your area in particular, so the business describes a social enterprise, and that's a term a lot of people might have heard, but might not necessarily not have delved into thinking of what does that mean? What's a business versus a social enterprise versus a charity? How do you describe it? I actually did a whole degree on this, actually. I did a master's degree last year with LSE, and it was all about social business and entrepreneurship. And it's like, how do you define a social business? It's a super interesting conversation. I'm not going to pull it too far into that. But what I think is, for me, 
a social business or a social enterprise or whatever, people think it's like an official, like legal thing that you can just like, you're either a business or a charity or a social business. And actually there is no sort of actual category of business that people just kind of call themselves. So that means that anyone can call themselves a social business, basically, which is kind of what we've done, if I'm honest. But I think that we do genuinely work towards a social mission. And that for me is a definition. Everyone has different definitions of it. Some people are like, oh, it's a business that they make X and that's not necessarily solving a social need, but they work in a really ethical way and they do these other little ventures outside of their core purpose that is social, but their core purpose is not necessarily solving a social or environmental need or health need or whatever it is. Um, they might call themselves a social business. I would not, mainly because for me, that's a good business that is operating fairly and good and well and looks after the people. Great. Wonderful. And actually more businesses should aim to do that. A social business for me is a business whose core output is about fixing a social problem or an environmental problem and does all the other stuff to support that and everything that they can do to be a good player in the world that really needs it. And then obviously then you have the nonprofits and the charities similar. Their output can also not be maybe the way that they operate could be completely horrendous. They could treat their people terribly. They can be environmentally really harmful, but their output is social. That what they're trying to do is fix a social need. Yeah, they're and they make no money. They have to raise money. They have to meet their costs and try and they're not making any profit. Yeah, social charity, social business, whatever you want to call it. But I think it's a really interesting like spectrum and people don't realize that you can literally just call yourself a social business. And I think it's catching up now. Like we've got the B Corp certification, which takes a lot of paperwork and a lot of admin and a lot of businesses operating this way anyway. And they don't have the time or the money to go after that B Corp certification. We're one of them. We're probably ticking all the boxes, but we're not like classified. It's a really interesting conversation. And do you think more businesses, even the larger traditional businesses, are being forced to or themselves are wanting to become a little more social in what they do anyway? Yeah, they have to. And it's twofold, I reckon. One is obviously customers, like customers are becoming really discerning about where they spend their money and who they support and who they talk about online. So that's one side. But the other side, I think is actually even more powerful is the employee. And I think employees, they're voting with their feet and they're calling out harmful businesses, culturally speaking. Their sort of good talent is now they have choice and they can choose who they're going to work for. And I think businesses are now recognizing that it doesn't work anymore just to be like, hey, well, look, some people, yes, it works. Here's a big fat check. Here's some stock options. Come on board. But I think actually so many big businesses have been burned publicly. I think there's sort of a trembling in the sort of the set in the space that everyone's sort of worried that their skeleton is going to come out because people have more power than ever to sort of say, this isn't good enough. I don't want to work here. I don't want to be associated. And I think there's twofold. Also, there are businesses that are genuinely looking at the future and being like, we're going to be out of business in 10 years time because no one's going to want to buy plastic or a gas, pa what am I talking about? Petrol cars and diesel cars. Like, we've got to change because otherwise we're going to die as a business. And so I think that sort of looking ahead at what the world is doing and how people are changing is also kind of putting pressure on people to CEOs and businesses to change their practices now to last longer. Yeah, without a doubt. We see so much of that in terms of both young talents, so school, university leavers, those who are looking for their second or third job in their 20s, demanding of the companies that they want to work for. 
what are your values? What are you doing to make the world a bit better because you exist? And they want that for themselves. They want that because also they want to be able to tell their peers and their friends, look, the company I'm working for is doing this. And it may not be the overriding factor for every single person, but it's definitely more important than it's ever been for businesses to be able to show they're doing something. And so you're now in this position where you have this sort of busy business, people coming in and out of it all of the time. And let's just sort of roll time back a little bit. And you're starting out in your own career, maybe you're in early 20s. Was something like Kindred what you thought would be on your horizon? Or what were you thinking of then? It's funny. I think I'm this kind of person, though, where I kind of just end up in situations. I'm like, oh, okay, this is what we're doing now. Great. I'm not someone with a five-year plan or in terms of my own goals, but I have a lot of ideas and creativity and I really enjoy kind of getting stuck into a project. So in my early 20s, I was a social worker, actually. So I had a bit of a weird start in that I'm musical. I love to sing. So initially, I wanted to be a performer and then decided that I didn't want to put pressure on the thing I love, earn me money. So I looked into the caring professions and also my sister was a, a doctor. And of course, if she's a doctor, I didn't want to do that. So I wanted to go into the other, the counterpart into social work. So yeah, studied social work for three years. And as a part of the degree, you kind of practice as well. So you have like a basement. So did that for three years and then worked as a social worker for three years in London in child protection and family support and all sorts of things. And I absolutely loved it, actually. And I think that not enough credit is given to the social work profession. I think it's an amazing profession to be a part of. And there's a lot of problems with it. It's super politicized, kind of, it's very risk averse. You're sort of having to cover your tracks all the time, write down everything that everyone says so you don't get taken to court for some awful reason. And it's pressured, but it's not as bad as everyone thinks it is. I think there's got such a bad rep as being like a really horrendous thing to work in. But I think if you love people and if you kind of get that everyone's just trying their hardest and everyone has a lot of difficult stuff to work through and like the world is hard and we're not going into politics but some governments make life harder for some people more than others and that's tough I think it's actually an amazing amazing fresh I loved it and it wasn't that I didn't like social work which is why I said kindred is that my brain just happens to be a bit different in that I can't help but think more systemically and bigger and I found social work very sort of task focus, firefighting, sort of family, family, family. And I wanted to think more structurally about, okay, why are these problems recurring in the communities? Why is all of these families all have problems around domestic violence, like mental health issues, alcohol, like all of these things. And I wanted to kind of think about more like a community approach. But I think as a junior, you know, in the public sector, you have to kind of work your way up to the top to make any kind of change. I think they are working on making it a bit more democratic, but gosh, it takes a long time in the public sector for all the reasons. And that was just too slow for me. So I wanted to kind of create, and initially I was thinking of starting a charity in that space and kind of thinking about community spaces and going from that angle. But then I realized I didn't want to spend my whole life trying to raise money because it would just be terrible at that. So I decided to look at a business model instead. So yeah, so that's kind of how it happened. I think the social work area is really interesting. It's too often invisible to a lot of people. And it's also too often given quite a negative label and negative press. And actually, I was for many years a governor of a school very, very close to where Kindred is, actually. And I used to sit on 
something called the exclusion panel, which meant that when the school had said this, and it was an all-boys school, when the school said, look, the behavior of one of these boys has got to such a stage where this boy needs to temporarily step away from the school or even permanently, they would then come in to one of these panels and I would sit down and listen to the young boy, listen to their carers or their parents talking about some of the background. It really clearly struck me that every single case, the behavioral issue that had gone on at school was really very little to do with the school and almost everything to do with what was going on in that boy or that young man's life outside of school. But perhaps from your experience of it, paint a bit of a picture for what it really felt like. Perhaps the extremes of it, what were the things, the events, the actual pieces of work you did that put a massive smile on your face and thought, I've made a difference there? And then I will ask you, okay, well, what about the bits that maybe made you sink a little bit, brought a tear? What what are the highs and the lows of actually day-to-day working for you? So my love of the job came from when you could really get teeth into a family. That's not really what I want to say, but you know what I mean? When you can get your into it. I don't want to say project because that's not it. But in terms of like an issue, when a family's facing a really annoying issue that seems like mundane to everyone else or not interesting or just horrid or whatever, and you can really immerse yourself in it, we're going to solve this problem. The problem with social work is that it's so much work to do. And there's so many families you have to work with that you don't have time to really like get in there and solve that problem. Because a lot of people think social work is just taking kids away from the families. That's not it. It's about trying to put things in place to enable the family to improve things at home. That's the whole point, the job. So when I was able to do that, that was amazing. And I'll give you an example. One family, challenging mother, okay? Like she was lovely, but she was a handful. And she had three gorgeous girls. And one of them decided to stop going to school. She just didn't want to go. And mum was letting her, she didn't know how to deal with the conflict. So kid was not going to school refusing to go and screaming every time. So I then started waking up 5.30 in the morning to get to the house in the morning to get this child to school. And I got the dad involved because the dad and mum weren't together. The dad was an Uber driver. I was like, right, you're coming. And we bundled. I literally was like, right, come on, carry this girl into the car. <laughs> I don't know if this is even allowed, but I'm out of the profession now. So let's say is bundled this child into the car. She's like lobbing her clothes out the window, like as the car's driving, screaming get her to the school, get her to the teacher, she calms down, everything's fine. Day two, same thing, screaming, throwing things, scratching me, all this stuff. Day three, I turn up at the door and she's there, dressed, ready to go, in her uniform, big smile on her face, she's like, I'm ready to go to school. And it was just like, like breaking through that sort of resistance because I was able to give the time to the family was just like the best thing. And then she was going to school and there was no problem. And it's just like, I think like that was such a joy for me when you kind of, it's very mundane, boring even. This kid's not going to school, make it go to school. The parents are like, I don't know what to do. When you can actively just like be there, be a second pair of hands. It's so clear to me that that's what a lot of families need. They just need another adult to support them to figure it out. Yeah, because life is hard. So that was sort of a lovely thing. I loved working with teenagers in gangs. That was like a big part of my, I was always given the girls that were sort of at risk of sexual exploitation all this horrible, difficult stuff. But I think what they really needed was just like someone not to patronize them and tell them off and just for someone for them to kind of turn to when they were struggling. And yeah, and just like my job was just keep them safe to make sure that they were going to be okay. And they would put themselves in really difficult situations and scary situations. But I really enjoyed working with those kids because just getting anywhere 
with them. I've, I have tons of stories, but I won't do them. And were there times or was there a time as well, no matter what you put into it, where the issues, the system were things you just couldn't change? Yeah, like lots. And the problem is, I would say, look, I'm not going to blame myself because I think you just don't have the time. Like the time I put in with that kid, it was when I had my job allowed for the time for me to do that. But in statutory social work, moving fast and you don't have time with parents. So you would often put things in place, be like, cool, right, go to this appointment, meet up with this support worker, do this, do that, do that. And then you leave and no one's there to kind of follow up. And I mean, technically there should be someone, but the system's so exhausted, it can't keep up with it all. So yeah, there was challenging profession because the system is not supporting. But if there was more support in the system and a stronger system, then yeah, it would be awesome because you could really make change. Then by the time you left your work as a social worker, what do you think that had done for you as a person in terms of your development, your skills, your attitude? What was different or better about you after your time doing that? That's a good question. Um, I think I was quite proud that I could communicate with a range of different people. Um, I think social work kind of, you'd be surprised who works with social work, but it's everyone. It's not just the poorest, I've worked with very wealthy families who have been having trouble. But I think communication for me is like talking to someone honestly about what's going on and talking about the scary, dark stuff, painful stuff, and just asking the questions that you need to ask. I think that was something that I took pride in developing over the years because I'm scary I was like 20 something year old asking this dad like why are you hitting your wife and kid or whatever this is like oh god this is scary and you go into scary situations and like you have to be social workers get attacked and locked in bathrooms and horrible stuff happens and spat on and assaulted I'm very lucky that nothing like that ever happened to me but there was the fear you kind of have to go into these quite frightening situations sometimes um but because why because you want to because he's like, well, if I'm frightened, how's X or Y feeling in this context? Does that give you now a level of confidence that I've been in these scenarios or I've seen these situations? So when I have a problem at work now, it's just a problem. It's not as bad as so many other things. Does it give you that underlying confidence or the problems you face in a work environment at Kindred now so different that they're fresh and challenging and just different problems? Yeah. Do you know what? It's really interesting you say that because I was having a really bad day the other day. Like just things were piling up and it wasn't like actual problem, but it was like emails I didn't want to have to answer because I was like conflict and difficult decisions I have to make. And it's all just so menial when you actually think about it. And I think it's true. I've not been in social work for a while now, but thinking back, it's like, oh yeah, no, people have actual problems. <laughs> I don't like it. it is helpful to give context. I do think that sometimes I'm more quick and able to have the difficult conversations than perhaps another person might be just because I've been forced to go there quite quickly with people in social work. And that was a really good skill. But I also think social work was good because it sort of helped me to think there's a solution to a problem. You just need to put things in place and you need to show people where to go and you need to like talk about the stuff that needs to be talked about. And I think running a team, I mean, we've got about 45 people here. I mean, I don't manage all of them. I don't. I barely manage any of them, to be honest. Like that's the lovely thing about running something that, and you kind of put people in place who are much better managers than than I am. Um, but I do think that that helps because people and 
everyone has problems and everyone has challenges. And it's just, so I think bringing that sort of culture of let's talk about it, let's look under that rock is something I'm proud of. So you move on from social work and you get to the point where you think, I'm going to start what has now become Kindred. What was that first year like once you made the commitment to go for it? What did it feel like being in that startup zone, in that mentality, both practically and emotionally? What was that first year like? Yeah, I'm going to skip to the bit where we actually like had the site and open because the year before that, finding a site is boring. Like it was just like admin and figuring it out and boring, but actually opening and starting it was completely bonkers, Mark. Like, I'm not going to lie. It was like, I think I, because I didn't know, I'm very happy to say I didn't know anything. And I sometimes feel like I still don't. And I sort of fell into this hospitality world without really understanding what that meant. Like my favorite job I'd ever had was working at Cafe Nero when I was 18. I absolutely loved it. But that was like my one piece. I'd waitress for a few things, but I'd never really like immerse myself in this world. And boy, it is a whole world of stuff that I did not know. So I remember the night before we opened, and this is just to give you some context of how it is working with me, it's chaotic. The night before we opened, I was like, I think we need to like put some signs up for like health and safety or something. So I was like madly Googling, like, what do you do when you open a restaurant? This is such a night before opening. Like we've done everything. We've done amazing renovation. Everything was ready to go. And I was like, I think we need like no smoking signs or like, I just didn't know because I'd never done it before. And I think people think that when people start a business, they like know everything and they know who to talk to. And I think some people do and some people are smart and they open something they understand. But then there are people like me who are completely like out there and just like, I'm just going to open this. And then you're literally just Googling everything. <laughs> just, or you would like calling people like, any chance you know, like where I get this weird niche poster that I need on the wall or whatever. And you just have to kind of just figure it out. And then when people come around, like officials come around, that can be really scary. So you're like, oh, no, I've messed up. But what I found is that if you just ask them to be like, look, I don't know. Like, can you just advise me? They love it because that's their job. That's why they got into fire safety or water safety or food safety. They want to support you. So that's been the lovely thing to discover is like, it's okay if you don't know. You, look, you should know some things. You should know the basic safety precautions I'm not like running a dangerous operation here but it's about like using the community in this industry to help you when you need help and not being too proud and not being too embarrassed with that because you just have to ask yeah you're just bound to miss things I still recall very clearly I thought I was on top of a business plan I thought I was on top of finance I, I had clear idea of the marketing the product I had two employees we were sort of working together we had the third employee starting tomorrow and it was about five o'clock that evening when the others turned around to me and said there's someone starting tomorrow isn't there I was like yeah yeah it's gonna be great she's gonna need a desk and like a computer and stuff and I looked around on little space next moment down to PC world and to Ikea and building the desk and wiring up that so there are so many things going around in your head but if you looked back over that first year, the real sort of learning points, the real reflection points on just that first year that you thought, okay, this is what I have learned. Yeah. And I realized I totally didn't answer that question previously. So apologies. So yes, thank you for putting me back. I think for me, the most important thing that I learned like in a visceral 
sense was how important it is, regardless of your position in a company, to roll up your sleeves and just get stuck in with the team, especially if you run a team. I mean, I think I know what leaders I respond to. And they're people who are not think that they are higher than anyone else, who do the work, who know what it is to work hard, to scrub a floor, to clean a toilet, to serve, pull a pint in my case or whatever. Because people will work for you if they respect you. They won't work for you if you're paying them a lot of money. Like, well, they will work for you, but they won't want to work for you. And I think that difference, you can really feel it. When someone's just there just to take the money and just go home, their energy filters out into the team, customers feel it. It just isn't worth it. When people work for someone that they want to work for, I'm not tooting my own horn. I'm definitely perfect, but I do get involved. I do like, and especially that first year, I was like on the floor. I was serving customers. I was still clean the loose regularly because honestly, it's you need to be on top of it. That's a good sign that if I could do it, anyone could do it. But there were moments when there was a decision to be made about should I do admin and emails or should I help lift boxes into the building because we had a big delivery and the team needed to get it in. And I would actively choose the boxes, even though my time was needed on answering these emails or like getting orders done or whatever it was. This was actually more important. But this, sorry, I'm pointing, but actually I'm lifting the boxes into the building with the team and using your body and being physical and showing that you're not above that work in this kind of industry is so important. But I think that can be extrapolated to all businesses. If you're running something and you're employing people to do something, if you don't want to do that job yourself, they are not going to respect you. They are not going to put their all in. They're not going to last very long in your company. They're not going to go the extra mile. So what you've got to show that you're willing to do it. And I think that was such a key, like that year I was doing everything. And it was partly out of necessity for business, but I think it really, I've got people that are still with me from the beginning because, and they could work anywhere and earn a lot more money than they were with me. But I think that is important. And you mentioned leadership there and your thought on being a leader along your own career path. Have there been other leaders that you've learned from and what have you learned from them? Interesting. So social work, there was one, so it was in Merton Council and look, public sector has a really bad rep for leadership. And I think that's earned. I think that they don't sort of pay people enough to work in public sector. Um, so you're not attracting the really amazing talent that the private sector can attract. Okay, so that's a whole other conversation. But there was a guy, I can't remember his name, apologies to him, but he made a real effort to bring in us underlings, us new social workers, juniors, whatever, into the conversation about how can we improve things. And I think for me, that was important because, and I felt a comparative council, won't name them, none of that. Didn't care what anyone had to think. It was very hierarchical. People worked up 20 years and then they made the decisions and no one. And But this guy, I think he had actually been brought in to kind of change things, but his approach was very fresh in the public sector. It sounds really obvious here, but that inspired me. And oh God, this is cringe, but my dad, but he runs an organization and he leads with optimism. And I think like in other ways, running an organization is challenging, but I think the optimism and the sort of the why can't we do that? And like the dreamy kind of mindset for me, I love that way of leading because I think it just gives people something like to hold on to and and something to get excited about and contribute to. Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of people in my life who are amazing examples. I, to be honest, because I went from social work to starting my own thing, I haven't got like 
a lot of really great MDs that I can be like, oh yeah, they were amazing. That was, but I have amazing friends and family who in their own worlds are just the most incredible leaders and they inspire me every day for sure. We have conversations internally about the difference between leadership and management and where they overlap and where they don't. And for me, leadership trumps management all the time. And I think your example there about the two London boroughs, the two councils and where you saw a bit of leadership and where you didn't see a bit of leadership, it runs through a whole organization. And often, perhaps you don't see it when it's there, but you always see it when it's not there. Now, obviously, your work has been so much about people, both as a social worker, but then now as a lead, you say you have 40, 50 staff working at Kindred now, but also the people who are the customers, the clientele, the entrepreneurs coming in there. That's a whole encyclopedic knowledge of dealing with people. And are there any sort of either approaches, sort of tenets, if you want, to your life when you're thinking about people in a working environment? What drives you? What drives me? Working with people. Interesting. It's weird because I actually like, I think of myself as quite an introverted person. I think I've learned extroverted qualities to make life a bit easier for myself. But I think I actually find, it's weird when you frame it that way. It's like, oh yeah, I have literally just like surrounded myself with people in my career and that's like my job. And I've always been passionate about making lives better for others. Like, and that's not sort of like, look at me. I genuinely think that I was born and raised with like to think about how can we give back? How can we like make prove things for people? And I've been very lucky in life. I've, I'm a privileged person in society compared to others. And I think I've always kind of felt like the classic Bible phrase to whom much is given, much is expected. And I think that that really drives me internally, not in the kind of like a guilt way and like a joyful way. Like I really love to just try and make life a bit more joyful and fun for everyone who has all these other challenges going on. And what's the point otherwise? I don't know. I just don't really see the point otherwise in life if it's not to try and improve things to the majority. So that's always been the driving force for me. Um, I think, and then there's the business acumen, which says in my mind, happier people on both sides, employees and customers make healthier businesses. I think that's just like the basic, right? Like, was it Dishoom who um, started measuring instead of focusing on, well, I think they do focus very much on the bottom line on profit and loss, but I think they famously started thinking about employee satisfaction and they were sort of the leading the charge on this. And as soon as they started looking at, okay, which of the branches are have happier employees, they're actually doing better. And then they started using that as a, as a key metric. And I think that that, I remember hearing that story. I was like, oh yeah, like it just makes business sense to invest in people on both sides. So that definitely is a thing for me. Now, from your experience in hospitality now with Kindred, one of the questions we actually had sent in to us by one of our career starter listeners was about careers in hospitality. And they basically asked, they said they're interested in it, but they're worried that apart from the basics of being waiters, working bars, is there an actual career to be developed in hospitality? Do you have any thoughts on that? Mark, I'm so glad you asked this question because I absolutely do. I think it's an amazing career path and it has a stigma around it of service. Oh, 
I'm waiting to get, like, we often get people, oh, this is temporary. I'm going into something else. I want to get into marketing. Or I want to get into whatever. Trying to find good hospitality people is hard. Like, but when you find them, they are like these diamond people. They are incredibly bright. They are well-trained. They know a lot about finance, about operations, about people management. Like uh, any good business outside the hospitality sector would be smart to hire like a general manager of a hospitality business because they are hard places to work. And if you work your way up, you achieve a lot and you learn a lot and you become these amazing leaders, amazing managers. There's a lot of people that aren't great, but you find them across everywhere. So let's not get bogged down in that. But I, as someone who hires people from the floor and kitchen porter and ki- like chef, bartender, they're all people that want to learn and to serve customers. Um, we avoid the people that are like, oh, this is temporary. I'm not, because there is a career path there. We've had people start off bartenders and then they, they go into management or they go into like the creative side of the business, um, photography and filmmaking and social media and graphics and stuff. We've had different pathways because there is so much hospitality more than just pulling pints is. And when you find people who love it and really passionate about it and could have gone into another career and probably earned more money. They are just like these diamond people and very, very smart. And I would say the world is changing. So AI is here to stay, right? So a lot of careers are going to be under sort of, they're going to be under threat from that, I think. There's a lot of careers that have traditionally very stable. It's going to be under threat. It could be gone very, very soon. And I think that people looking at what they want to do and what they want to give to the world, service industry hospitality, I don't think that's going to be replaced very easily or very quickly. That experience of being looked after by another person, provision of food and wine and drinks and entertainment and events and all that stuff and facilitating spaces and experiences, that's going to be harder to get off the map wherever they are, in in my view. And I think that is an incredible, if you find a good company, a good boss to work for, or there are some good ones out there that really invest in their people. I think it's a brilliant career path. I think that it's interesting because so much of your work has been so people focused. I can't see AI making massive inroads inroads into social work. And as you say, into the core face-to-face aspects of hospitality. So we do talk on the show about the impact of AI in different career areas, but you're going to continue to be very people focused and very people centric. And and I, I think I feel we've barely scratched the surface of what your own career journey has taught you, what you've learned along the way. But I'm taking out of this the importance of a a CEO getting stuck in, being prepared to lift those boxes of just being empathetic and understanding people. And also, as we discussed at the beginning, you can have the excitement and energy of business and actually be doing something that has a social purpose as well. It's not a case of, I want to make money, do a business. I want to do good, do a charity. More and more businesses are doing an increasing amount of social good because that is demanded of them by their customers and it's demanded of them by their employees as well. And I think it will be fascinating to see Kindred over the next five years and the next 10 years and where it goes from there. So thank you so much for those observations about that. There's one thing we do always like to ask at the end, which is about passing this baton of career stories and careers experience along. And so is there anybody else, one other person you could think of who, if we could unwrap their career, 
would be interesting, would be useful, be thought-provoking for listeners, whatever their background, whatever their sector, who might you recommend we get on the show? That's an interesting one. This is a big hitter. And I can't remember his name, and it's so embarrassing because he's actually an amazing human being. But the founder and owner of Dishoom, I think, could be very interesting because he is hospitality through and through, but also has this really beautiful mission at the core of Dishoom, which is to break down barriers between communities and bridge. And they do these beautiful events. And I can't remember his name, it's so awful, but he is inspiring. And I think for anyone who is listening, who is interested about getting into hospitality, listening to him, I think could be the leader that we're looking for in that space because he has a great mission and he runs a great company, great products and looks after his people. So I think whoever he is, whatever his name is, yes. Well, we will track him down. Great company, great product, great mission. Sounds like a great guy. So we'll find him. Anna, thank you so much for joining us. It's been really interesting and wonderful to have you on the show. Thank you for having me, Mark. It's been fun. This podcast is sponsored by We Are Futures. To find out more about We Are Futures and how we can introduce your brand, business or organization to the mass markets of tomorrow, visit www.wearefutures.com. Make sure to search for Careers Unwrapped in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Remember to click subscribe so you don't miss out on any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at We Are Futures, thanks for listening.